and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast. I'm Chris Ratcliffe, I'm with Martin Spain, and in episode 24, we're going to be discussing killer trucks. But first, you have some follow-up to the last episode, Martin. Yeah, there's been another piece talking about how bad Driven is, which uh, I find kind of amusing that they're coming along, both at the, uh, you know, two at once, like buses. Um, this is on a website called Birth Movies Death, which is rather good movie commentary, and it's a piece that says, Forgotten Stallone, colon, Driven. So this is picking through his some of his lesser-known back catalogue, uh, and it has... One of the most wonderful little sub sub line to the piece, it says, someone wins a race, no one wins in this movie. <laughs> Which is probably fair if you've seen it a few times, and unfortunately I have. Uh, you do not win. <laughs> it's a fun piece that talks a lot about um, where Stallone was in his career when he came to make this, and also where Rennie Harlan, the director, was in, in making the movie and how it's kind of a an interesting time as movies started moving from sort of 90s film and practical to the full digital era that we're in now, where CG is largely photo real and seamless. And as anyone who has unfortunately watched Driven knows, the CG in there is not real and not seamless. Mm. Quite apart no, from the no, appalling no, no. stunt work with with space frame chassis and Indy Lights cars as Indy cars, there's some terrible sub-computer game graphics in there. It's a fun little piece. I recommend going and have a read of it. It's not as long as uh, Marshall Pruitt's excellent takedown from the last episode, but it's worth going and having a read. And we promise this will be the last thing we mention about Driven, a movie we continue to talk about, even though it's rubbish. (laughs) But it's such a yardstick of rubbish. That's the thing. It's a film that is so bad that it sticks in your mind for all of the wrong reasons. It's very true. In the UK, there's been news this week that... TV production is going to be restarting, as reported by the BBC, somewhat appropriately. Um, There are measures that have been introduced and adopted by BBC, ITV, Channel 4, Channel 5 and Sky to protect actors and crews when filming for TV in any form resumes. Currently, apparently they are midway through production of Top Gear, so they are expecting that along with some soap operas to start shooting again by the end of June and it's going to be quite interesting to see because the measures that have been talked about are things like shooting people on green screens, having actors standing further apart, doing more alternating takes between people who aren't actually standing close to each other as well as having less crew, having just less people involved in the production. Um, One of the interesting points that did come up in this BBC article was apparently one of the recommendations is that actors must do their own hair and makeup. I have to interject here because I know you're going to go on, but I have a question about actors doing their own hair and makeup when two of the three presenters from Top Gear have dyed their hair blonde during the lockdown. So they kind of look like cut price bargain basement M&M clones. <laughs> In their own words, Paddy McGuinness uh, dyed his hair blonde a while back for charity. I think um, Paddy McGuinness then challenged Chris Harris to do his hair, uh, which he promptly did. And it's not a great look, if I'm honest. It's very funny. and I have to give huge respect to Chris for sticking with it. In, and, and not just kind of doing it and then washing it out. No, he's he's stuck with it and it does look faintly ridiculous, but, you know, it was all done for charity and hopefully a bit of money was raised. But yes, you have to wonder about what they mean by do own head. Is it just make sure the blonde is extra blonde? Are they going to go on camera looking like that? Because I cannot see how 
Flintoff is going to give them a pass on this. They're not going to get any lines out. There's just going to be continuous mickey-taking and, and the like and commentary on the hair, never mind about the cars. I'm wondering about the makeup because we all know that TV people wear more makeup than you'd probably actually realise in order to look natural on camera. But they've got to be, there's got to be a point, particularly with Top Gear, that part of the series has already been filmed. It may be aired out of order anyway. So there will suddenly be a piece somewhere where I imagine like Paddy McGuinness walking into frame with like this really badly applied lipstick and rouge on his cheeks and all sorts. I'm not sure they go that far. What I want them to do, especially with the hair, is just not say anything. For them to cut for just one one shot to be like before the lockdown and then the next shot to be after lockdown and absolutely nothing is said whatsoever. It's just played completely straight. That would make me very happy because that's enormously silly. And there'll be the, some producers somewhere will be going, oh, please, let's just do a voiceover to explain it. They'll be like, no, nope, no, nope, nope, don't say a thing. That's the joke. There was a live stream between Jeremy Clarkson and Andy Willman, formerly of Top Gear now, both of the, uh, the Grand Tour, discussing various things, which unfortunately seems to have vanished off the YouTubes to be replaced with a few clips. Yeah, they've got clips. I didn't watch the full thing. I saw it was happening, but I think, you know, having a small child took over Mm. and I didn't get a chance to watch it. I have watched or or tried to watch through a few of these clips um, just in and around normal day job stuff. And they're quite entertaining. Clarkson clearly looks like he's been spending all day outside. He's absolutely pink as you like um there's an entertaining one where clarkson notices all of the awards on the shelves behind andy willman's desk and quizzes on where they came from and it turns out that andy willman when asked to make a swift exit from the top gear offices after everything went down just before they went off and started the grand tour uh turned out he grabbed all the awards before he left which is not something the bbc would ordinarily condone but it goes very much towards the schoolboy attitude of that particular production team of just going quickly let's whip this into a tesco carrier bag and leg it out the door before they notice (laughs) so there's a bafta there's various other tv awards and then there is a an interestingly shaped award for richard hammond um i won't go into any more go and watch the clip to see it but uh, yes Mm. there's there's that and there's another clip about how they ended up dropping a whole adventure that they'd shot in russia right they hadn't shot it I think they were due to travel out and shoot it soon. But basically, they'd paid for visas, logistics, scouting, um, a load of other expenses that were essentially, at this point, sunk costs. And they had to kind of make a decision that either they carry on and try and do it and see what happened or kind of cut their losses. So it's interesting that, obviously, for a... I wouldn't say they're a big production company, but they've obviously got a loss there to, to weather... So quite what's going to happen with some of the smaller production companies, we shall see. But one of the other things that they did say in that webcast was that they have another special that has been finished, has been submitted to Amazon, and they keep getting asked continually when it's going to air, and they don't know. But I think by now it will have gone to Amazon, and we're basically waiting for, for them to give a date. So at the very least, there is another Grand Tour special coming soon. Well, that's it, isn't it? They were going to do three or four in the year rather than a series Mm. of episodes of films they were just going to do three or four long form specials presumably that russia one was one of them that is now not going to happen like you say that that they've written that one off Mm. they've got this other one which i guess is probably 
in the final stages of edit and grading and all the kind of things to, to give you the polished end product because they shot it like six months ago. Mm. Um, so there will be some new Grand Tour coming to Amazon Prime in the next four months or so. I'm quite interested to see that. You and I didn't really like the, the Grand Tour Presents semen. The trailer promised so much and the actual product was, was less than stellar for us. So yes. I'm still optimistic because I've gone back during during this lockdown process and watched a ton of old Top Gear and Grand Tour episodes and, and I still find them funny and I still mm-hmm. want to watch them. So I'm looking forward to it. New Grand Tour is still better than no Grand Tour. Yes, even when it gets faintly ridiculous. And speaking of faintly ridiculous... <laughs> That's a bit cranky. <laughs> Creaky segue... Empire have ranked every Fast and Furious film, and in my notes that I wrote, I've written wrongly. Yeah, I I spotted this. uh, Empire Magazine, who are uh, an august publication that I'm a huge fan Mm -hmm. of and have been a subscriber for decades, I think, at this point, have released a ranking of every Fast and Furious movie. We're not going to tell you what the ranking is. Uh, Have a look, look at the link in the show notes. But... I think Chris and I both agree that we disagree with this ranking. This ranking appears to have been, been written by somebody who is far more interested in the kind of heisty movie, big spectacle style of Fast and Furious as it evolved towards in the latter years and less interested in the kind of more street racery car content that you got. So their their ordering is questionable. I'd agree with about half of it. Mm. Um I, it's probably no spoiler to say that Too Fast, Too Furious does not rank highly on the list because <laughs> it's shit. Which is a point we all agree on. <laughs> but yeah, worth a, worth a look. And it did bring to mind that, A, we need to do a Fast and Furious rewatch because we're you know walking cliches and constantly talk about it on this podcast. Yep. But, and you haven't seen all of them. So nope. you're going to have to sit through some of the later ones that get a little samey. But... <laughs> are still ridiculous fun. But also that we should probably do our own ranking. Yep. I mean, obviously, Tokyo Drift is number one, so we just have to position the other films Ooh, behind hold it. hold your horses. I'm not sure I'd position Tokyo Drift number one in my list, so we're going to have to do a list Ooh. each, because otherwise the arguments could run for ages. Uh, but there ends your contractually obliged Fast and Furious content for this episode of the podcast. <laughs> What's Charles Leclerc been up to in Monaco, Chris? <laughs> Being announced today, and this is somewhat spurious because there seems to be half a story here that's been fairly widely reported, Charles Leclerc has apparently been tapped up to do a remake of Sete and Rendezvous in Monaco because I think the Monaco Grand Prix was supposed to be this weekend and they've got some road closures Sunday morning. And they've apparently also got Claude Lelouch, if I read the slightly breathless stories correctly. So quite what an actual Ferrari Formula One driver, possibly driving actual Ferrari, is going to do on closed roads, I'm not so sure. I mean, it would be great if they could do it in actual France as opposed to, I mean, Monaco is basically the Wales of France. Hold on now, hold on now. <laughs> the Wales of France. I love Wales. That's, I'm not sure who that's more, more mean to, Wales or Monaco. <laughs> anyway, yeah, more to the point, it's a shame they're not doing this in Paris mm. to be more true to the original for two reasons. One... There's more space in Paris, so if you are going to use a contracted Ferrari F1 driver and presumably a Ferrari car, 812 mm. super fast, maybe, or I don't know, then you've got loads of space to let it run free. I get that probably closing down Paris 
is is harder, which is why Claude Lelouch <laughs> didn't bother last time and just did it anyway early on in the morning. But I feel like Monaco is way too small and tight, even closed down, even for F1. You know, I've walked around those streets and they are really damn narrow. Mm. I, I remember going there and, and going around the hairpin and thinking, how the hell do they get a Formula One car around this corner, let alone at any kind of pace? So I feel like this could be a bit of a gimmick. I, I'm willing to wait and see what the end product looks like and see if it's actually as cool as the original and if it has that kind of pirate outlaw feel to it but this sounds like it might just be a big publicity gimmick in lieu of the actual grand prix going on this weekend i think it could be a bit like our favorite of the bmw festival films the guy Ritchie. um oh star that would be fun if they did that if they did that but in a ferrari i am absolutely on board around monaco around monaco that'd be fantastic it would kind of require charles leclerc to kind of yeah, you know, I'd know. Take his girlfriend for a ride in the back of the car or something. Wait, that sounded wrong. Um, <laughs> we all know. She, did you see? Right on a complete tangent. Did you hear the story about Charles Leclerc and his girlfriend this week? Yes, I did. The one where he was too busy playing sim racing that he didn't hear her knocking on the door of his apartment. So the only way she could get in was to pay money to subscribe to his Twitch channel <laughs> so that she could send him a message on screen to say, "I'm locked out of the apartment." <laughs> You can't write this stuff. It's fantastic. And I love that all of these new generation of drivers are very distinctly different in their their interests to the kind of older generation. You know, they're far more into the sim racing online, mm. far more open in their presence. It's really refreshing, especially as somebody who kind of followed Formula One through the Bernie era of, mm. you know, absolute lockdown, no no one shall show any personality. No one will engage with social media because it doesn't pay, et cetera, et cetera. It's just really refreshing to see. But yes, that was a ridiculous story. Not really the kind of subject matter we normally cover on the podcast, but funny nonetheless. It was brilliant. Here is a question, though, that is actually set in rendezvous related. Who in the current or past, well, let's say and, so a current driver and a historical driver, do you think these days would actually wake up in Monaco at four in the morning, gaffer tape an Osmo pocket to the front of their road car and actually go and do that drive illegally for real? Yeah, it's difficult in the current... Because you add the word illegally and then immediately all of the current drivers go, not me, I've got sponsors, I've got a contract, I do not want to risk that kind of thing. I've got one exception... I think Jos Verstappen would actually do it. Ladies and gentlemen, that's because Jos Verstappen's a bellend. (laughs) He's a rebel, and sure, he probably would do it. Would he be the best driver to do it? I don't know. His Formula One career was a bit shit, which is why he kind of said to his son, Max, here's all the things I did, don't do those. And hence, Max has turned out to be quite handy in a racing car um i don't know i like to think that someone like lando norris would give it a shot the legal thing would always put them off but he strikes mm. me as the kind of person who would go stick a thing on the front of his car and then go for a quick drive and put it out on the socials and not tell anybody and not tell it well no he would tell somebody well that's, yeah, actually yeah, that's, that's wrong he would probably just make an amusing video like that one of him that he did after he retired from the french was it no it was the canadian grand prix where his car then just went he went running back to the factory have you seen that one no it's brilliant I'm a total Lando fanboy for this kind of thing. Go and seek it out. It's got this ridiculous kind of cheap, almost Monty Python-esque 
animation of him running back from the the uh, Canadian Grand Prix. Fantastic! It's what about a historic driver. A historic driver. Well, Jos, Jos the boss, Verstappen. That's not a bad shout because he was a bit of a rebel and a bad boy. Um, I, I let's actually, see, Rene Arnoux. But sorry. René Arnoux, he was a bit of a bad boy in his time. Adrian Suttle would do it and then glass somebody in a bar afterwards. No, he's too busy glassing people in the neck. He, he wouldn't have time. There's, a, there's a busy schedule of inserting champagne flutes into the side of people's heads. What about Stefan Beloff? Maybe, yeah, he, he probably would. He was certainly crazy enough to do it, given that that... Speaking of which, and I know we've gone down total tangent alley, but we're kind of allowed to because we've gone through the news really quickly because there's not much news. Um, I've been going back and watching a ton of Nürburgring laps recently, and not just because I was due to be there and I'm feeling a bit, oh, I want to go back. Mm. Um, and I rewatched a couple of my favourite laps because you've seen so many on boards now that they've Ooh. kind of all run into one another and there's only one or two that really stand out. One of which is uh, Kevin Estre's GT3 RS lap, mm. which is just phenomenal. There's a bunch of laps on on YouTube of him taking passengers and he doesn't seem to hang around on those laps, but his, his one to set the, the lap record... I think at the time anyway, was just mm. spectacular. And also I've gone back and rewatched the 919 Evo lap, which I would love to see the footage they, that Porsche must have from the helicopter and from trackside. They've never released it. They've just gone, here is the onboard, this is all you get, and then some cruddy fan video. Because I just want to see from the outside what it looks like going at that pace, because it's insanely fast. Mm. And so... Every time I watch it, I think, so that's what, 5.19 or whatever it was. And I think back to 1983 and Beloff doing it in a car with no safety measures, cruddy tyres, and still putting in a lap that's only 40 seconds slower. It's bonkers. I mean, mm. I think that the 919 lap makes the Beloff lap more impressive. And I know there's a bunch of... Uh, nerds who were like, it's not really the lap record because it didn't take place on a motorsport weekend. Meh, 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 meh. I say balls to that. <laughs> it's the lap record because it's the fastest anyone's gone round the circuit. The end. Yep. Anyway, that was a really, really long tangent. Um, Charles Leclerc is going to make Cité en rendezvous, potentially. Um, it could be like Guy Ritchie's star and kind of in your face and tongue in cheek and funny. Or it could be a Ferrari advert. And let's not forget, actually, Ferrari, if they put their minds to it, are not bad at making adverts. Do you remember the Shell ones they did yeah, yeah. with the generations yeah. of Ferrari car going through? That's a fantastic advert. Uh, if you haven't seen that, we'll try and link that one in the show notes. It's a really fun advert for Shell fuels with Ferrari cars through the generations. If they do something like that, I'm really into it. But I, my only worry is that Monaco is too small a space, particularly if they're doing it in any of the current Ferrari lineup. They're all too quick. Mm. The Pista... The uh, the eight twelve super fast by all accounts is so insanely quick it's almost unusable. The bar that it's got to meet and hopefully surpass and this will be the yardstick by which I judge it will be when Chris Harris took his five twelve tr out for some bread. Yeah, that's a good film. Um, maybe that'll come up in a YouTube pick sometime in the future. But yes, uh, another one to go and see. Look, we're giving you loads this week. The uh, the playlist that we haven't made or updated uh, is getting longer by the day, <laughs> if we ever get around to doing it. Just to be a bit more indulgent for a minute, if you wouldn't mind awfully sticking with us, um, this week's intermission uh, is with me talking with Will Buxton, the F1 presenter and 
all-round lovely bloke. It was a great, great chat. If you haven't had a listen, I would heartily recommend it. It was it was actually a really fun interview to do. It's a great interview. I really enjoyed it. Um, sound quality is not quite up to some of our other guests, but Will makes up for that in, in sheer enthusiasm and love for the subject. And he's a real film buff as well. Some, um, mm. some unsurprising gems for his choices of film car and uh, stories that he wants to tell. So... Really, really check that one out. If you haven't listened to some of the Intermission uh, podcasts before, there's loads of really good ones. There's um, alongside Will Buxton. The previous one was JF Musial. And the one before that was probably my favourite, was Al Clark, who dropped some amazing nuggets of, of knowledge on, on mm. insider tricks um, when filming cars. So do check the Intermission podcasts out. And if you're enjoying this podcast, do leave us a nice review. Three stars or more would be nice. And tell your friends, and this, as I've said on the socials this week, this really is a passion project for for Marty and I. We do it because we love the subject. We like to share what we find with all of you. We're kind of like automotive wombles, making good (laughs) use of the things that we find. Uh, we yes, we wumble through the automotive world for just for your benefit. Um, one other thing, as I'm now trying to get the image of wumbles out of my head. Sorry, I completely spoiled that. Also, in the last since the last episode, I recorded a live webcast with Mark Gillespie and the folk from Whiskeycast. So, if you want to see me talk about whiskey amongst uh, other things with Mark and and a couple of other whiskey bloggers. It was a really good show, sort of, a, what would it be, an hour and hour and a quarter for the whiskey chat, and then you get to see the host have his head shaved, as <laughs> I am somewhat more aerodynamic as well, um, as you may have, uh, again, seen on our social media feeds. But we'll put a link to the WhiskeyCast uh, webcast up because it's up on YouTube um, and it's something a little bit different so if you're into your cars and you're into your whiskey give it a watch however I think we now need to go striding into the world of killer trucks <laughs> this was a, such an off the cuff idea for a show theme I forget what I think something maybe maximum overdrive was put into my head and I thought, oh, that would go really well with Steven Spielberg's Jewel, which I'm going to talk about. But first, <laughs> unfortunately, um, so whenever we do these themes, Marty and I swap texts and we exchange emails and we go, what about this? Well, you could watch this and I want to watch this. And sometimes you have something in mind that you want to watch. Maybe you've wanted to watch it. Maybe you love it and you want to talk about it some more. I... I had never heard of Maximum Overdrive. I had checked Rotten Tomatoes. That didn't go well. I tried to find it because we always have to watch these things somehow and we we do it legally, mostly. Um, So Maximum Overdrive is not on Netflix. It's not on Amazon Prime. You can't buy it on the UK iTunes. And that's probably actually a good thing. It's starting to tell you something when you can't find it on any outlet whatsoever. Yeah. So this is the 1986 film, a adaptation of a Stephen King short story, adapted by Stephen King, directed by Stephen King. And the poster for the film is about 75% Stephen King. And about 25% the rest of the cast. 
Wait a minute, so as in letters, or it's just a big picture of a slightly nerdy man in glasses? It's basically Stephen King as a puppet master presiding... Uh, where are oh, we? that's terrible. <laughs> that's not a good poster. That doesn't sell you on the movie. The whole movie. How often based- are the writers and the directors on the movie poster? Yeah, it is. Oh, dear. So the plot of it is, and I use the term loosely, the Earth is passing through the tail of a comet, and for eight days it will be in this comet's tail. Unbeknownst to the people of Earth, the machines are turning on them. And the first scene, once you've seen the globe in this sort of green haze, is a, um, what do you call those motorised bridges over rivers? You know, the sort of, like the opening of Blues Brothers. Um, Yeah, I know. One of those. It goes up by itself as the traffic's going across. A truck gets caught right on the on the edge of the jaws as it goes up and it reverses so hard the back axle falls off <laughs> it drops watermelons all over the cars at the bottom of the hill somebody falls over on them i'm not making this up um then the the big trucks on the highway start trying to run people over and they start crashing into cars because of the watermelons no, no, because, well, we don't know. Is it the comet? We shall see. Um, spoiler, it isn't. Um, <laughs> uh, that's a whole other thing, which I'll come to in a minute. Basically, these trucks, one of which has a kind of distorted evil clown face on the front, decide they're going to start killing humans. And the whole film focuses on the Dixie Boy truck stop, which becomes this kind of refuge of all of these people that have come together and the trucks are evilly circling this um, truck stop and any time anybody goes out into the car park, somebody will likely get run over. There's also another scene at the start where a vending machine kills a kid's baseball team's coach and then a runaway steamroller barrels through a chain link fence and runs over one of the players it's oh and then it cuts to inside the truck stop where an electric carving knife then attacks a waitress giving her a bit of a cut on the arm <laughs> inside you've got the you've got Emilio Estevez as the guy on parole who's being hard done to by his boss you've got the boss himself who is actually one of the better characters um Played by an actor called Pat Hingle, who you wouldn't know the name, but you, he's one of the, like, that guy. You might look at him and go, oh, wasn't he in the thing? Yes. Uh, hey, it's that guy. And he's the, the 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 boss who takes advantage of his employees and all this sort of thing. Um, you've got a lone woman who's hitchhiking. She ends up there. At one point, her and Emilio Estevez's character end up in bed having a bit of jiggy-jiggy fun time while the evil trucks are still circling. It's weird. You've also got Yardley Smith, who is the voice of Lisa Simpson, in a role that she regrets. (laughs) It sounds like most of the cast might be regretting their role in this movie. So the idea is that it's kind of this tense thriller horror film where you've got this group of people and how are they going to escape? Except it's rubbish. They're in this truck stop and you think, how are they going to get out of it? And you go, I don't care. 
because it says in this title card at the start that the Earth is in this comet's tail for eight days. So you kind of think, wait it out, maybe. Also, the trucks can run out of diesel. About half an hour in, the owner of the truck stop remembers he has an, a fully armed basement, pulls out a rocket launcher and starts blowing stuff up. Not all the trucks, but enough to kind of get a bit of a Michael Bay kind of boom thing. Yardley Smith uh, is this newly married woman, her and her husband. They turn up at one point. You can see they're sat in the car having an argument and the car's got a roll cage in it. It's just not even like they've made any effort, quite frankly. Um, Some of the robotics are quite good. They have a tank gun on a motorized cart that turns up at one point. I think mostly so they can threaten people to refuel all the trucks. That gets blown up because they've got a full, full armory. And they get away in the end. Yeah, it's kind of like, and? You don't care about the people. There's no logic as to what things are trying to kill them and what aren't, because not everything is. Emilio Estevez can apparently sail boats, so they want to go on a sailboat to an island where there's no cars. Okay. And then right at the very end, they put up another card that explains what was actually causing all of these problems. And it's bobbins. It's just... You know, when you have a twist in a film and you kind of go... (gasps) And then you you rethink everything else that's gone on in that film. Yeah. This wasn't one of those. It was... You kind of read it and you go, "Uh?" because it just (laughs) undermines everything that's happened. Apparently Stephen King was doing an awful lot of the Peruvian marching dust at the time. And he obviously was sat there in Edit Bay going, oh, uh, okay, well, how about this then? And they just sort of wrote something and stuck it on the screen and went, yeah, pfft, that'll do. My, big, my biggest problem with it is actually another Stephen King film, which is The Mist. If any of you have seen The Mist, which is also a Stephen King film, uh, sorry, it's a Stephen King short story that got adapted and was directed by Frank Darabond, who wrote Shawshank Redemption and A Green Mile, I think it was. Um, And it's the same thing. It's a group of people trapped in a situation while strange things are happening outside. And it is tense. It's thrilling. It has a twist that just completely makes you rethink everything you've seen in the previous hour. It's everything that Maximum Overdrive isn't. At one point, the, the... attractive woman in it stands by a window in candlelight and kind of looks out into the middle distance and says something along the lines of I never thought it would be maximum overdrive and he's like right this is the level we're at it's just the problem is we've talked about driven repeatedly in this podcast we've talked about it the last two episodes we talked about it earlier in this episode it's so bad that it's good it becomes memorable because it's bad this isn't bad in that sense. This is bad in the sense of being boring. That if I hadn't been watching it f- to talk about it now, I would probably have turned off after about 20 minutes, half an hour. Because once you get the premise, you kind of go, oh, okay, yeah, I know how this is going to play out now. And you'd be pretty much right. The special effects, apart from the self-driving vehicles, which apparently were very unreliable are unremarkable. The horror movie cliches are there. You know, if a truck is driving towards you, do you run to the side or do you keep running away from it in a straight line? (laughs) Ah, this is the, what is it, the Charlie's Theron Prometheus move. Yes, yes. It's 
it's all of those and it has basically nothing to recommend it it has no redeeming qualities it's not bad enough to be interesting there's no clever idea there's no set pieces in it that are in any way memorable it's just boring and at the end of the day that is the worst criticism i can give of it yeah that's about the most damning thing you can say about a movie it's just that it's boring there's no redeeming features what was it you said to me that um when people ask stephen king why he doesn't direct more movies he says have you seen maximum overdrive (laughs) (laughs) so clearly he's aware of the state he was in when he made it and the quality of the finished product I, I I genuinely wonder, and I haven't read a lot of Stephen King, but given somebody writes a short story and then they adapt it themselves... The adapting is the thing, though, and all the best Stephen King movies have been done by a whole host of different and extremely talented directors. If you think about another one about Cars, Christine... That's a great book and a quite terrifying book as you, as you read it. And it's turned into an absolutely terrifying movie by John Carpenter. Uh, one we will come to because it it's a favourite of mine. Um, or you look at something like Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption that was adapted by Frank Darabont, mm. as you say, or from the same book, The Body, which was turned into Stand By Me by Rob Reiner. They need, it needs an outside influence to take what is vivid on the page and turn it into something that works as a movie now i haven't read the short story maximum overdrive is based on but i can imagine it being not terrible not boring king stuff is never boring sometimes i don't like his stuff particularly his later work but it's never boring as a book so to find that you know okay you're a really great author not just Mm. of horror but of literature but you're not a great director and unsurprisingly, how there aren't that many really great writer directors, um, and often they're writing a screenplay rather than a book, mm. um, and then they don't have to take a, or if they're taking a book, it's somebody else's book that they're not precious about, and therefore they can hack it and slash it to their heart's content. Maybe, maybe that's the thing. But I, I have to apologise slightly for giving you Maximum Overdrive <laughs> because I didn't want to watch it again, and I'd had this stupid idea to do Killer Trucks as a show theme, and uh, it meant one of us was going to have to take the fall, and this time it was you, <laughs> uh, for which I apologise. But uh, we can make up for that with my review of Jewel, which is a genuinely great movie. So if you're thinking of watching one movie about killer trucks, make it Jewel. (laughs) This is an early Stephen King joint. Sorry, this is an early Steven Spielberg joint, rather. Made in 1971 for television originally and then extended into a theatrical release. It was a movie that Steven Spielberg was told about by his secretary, who had read a short story by an author called Richard Matheson about a man who's out on the highway and gets tailgated aggressively by a truck that then tries to kill him. Uh, This was published in Playboy magazine of all places. (laughs) And Spielberg has said something along the lines of, it's the first time I ever picked up a copy of Playboy to read the words. (laughs) He went and then lobbied the, the studio to be, to be able to direct this. And this is not the Steven Spielberg that we know now, the brilliant director of unknown, amounts of hit movies. This is a guy who had done a few TV episodes, didn't have a film credit to his name, and was largely unknown, untried, untested. 
And they gave it to him based on, I think, an episode of Columbo he'd done. Yes! Have you ever seen that episode? I haven't, although I hear that it, it looks nothing like all of the rest of the episodes of Columbo because <laughs> he was basically being a director and adding his own stylistic touches to it, whereas kind of for TV and especially in the early 70s, they just want you to come in and do exactly what all the other ones have been doing to keep the continuity and don't, you know, don't get ideas above your station, whereas Spielberg was very much a child of cinema and wanting to get his ideas out on screen. And that's... One of the things you notice with this movie, it's made by someone who loves cinema. There's so little dialogue in it. There's hardly anything. The main character is a a driver called David Mann who's driving this red car. Um, We don't know where he's going. He's kind of going through the canyons in in America in in his car. And he gets tailgated by a truck. And that's largely the, 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 the plot of it as you as you get the kind of the, the highlights, but it doesn't go into just how brilliantly tense this is. And because it's not got dialogue, there's no... He, he Occasionally he'll cut to some kind of inner monologue from from the driver about halfway through after he's had one particularly tense encounter. He pulls over at a rest stop and goes to wash his hands and kind of wash his, wipe his face down and try and get a whole grip of himself. And then you get a kind of voiceover, which is giving you his innermost thoughts. But up until that point, all you've heard him do is talk to his wife on the phone briefly and nod along at the talk show that he's listening to in the car radio. But even then, there's not that much of that. And there's a little dialogue later on when he stops off in a bar, but it's largely all sound design. And it's it's an early example of the sound telling the story in a way that you just are so used to in movies now. But I imagine in the early 70s, it must have been quite a surprise, especially for a television movie, where the truck is just all bass rumble and... The car is this anonymous, pathetic whine. And and every time it cuts to the truck, you get this... Um, and it really gives it an air of menace. And there's this little re- repetitive creaks and groans as the truck goes past. And it's so clearly intentional. This isn't someone just slinging a thing together to just contractually meet an obligation and get an hour filled on a television slot in the night. This is someone who has been given the opportunity and they're going to seize it with both both hands. So this driver, David Mann, is trying to drive across California. He tries to pass a truck, um, which is kind of ahead of him, dirty brown, spewing filthy exhaust. Um, he tries to pass him, and the truck driver somehow takes offence and then starts to annoy him by continually passing him and then slowing down and then passing him again and slowing down and then starts to play mind games where he kind of tempts David to pass the tanker only to cut across the road and put him onto the verge when he tries. And it escalates from then on. And particularly the second half of the movie just gets tenser and tenser as you're seeing this this unrelenting foe looming in the 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 rear view mirror and the side mirror of the car or you see it kind of just getting closer and closer to his bumper everything's shot with long lenses to uh, from a low angle it's a masterclass in how to make a, a an object look scary he apparently chose the particular truck because he wanted one that had a face so he he chose one that has sort of um, headlamps either side of a narrow radiator grill and and a, and a longer bumper on the bottom for the mouth rather than the kind of flat fronted trucks that you think of when you think of a you know tractor unit for 
anything now um, because he wanted it to have a visage, a face that you can that you can see and fear. Um, it's a Peterbilt. Hold on, let me just check my check my notes because somebody has, of course, nerdily spotted that actually there were two trucks used in it and in the movie. It's a Peterbilt two eighty one and a three fifty one. That means nothing to me. They are brown. They are <laughs> they are trucks. <laughs> Doesn't matter. But the the joy of this is seeing a very creative director being given what is largely basically a silent film. It's it you could cut all the dialogue out and it would be the same experience almost just to lean on the sound design and there's brilliant little touches of framing where the truck will be glimpsed in the background when the driver takes a break uh, uh, like a, uh, a diner and he's trying to gather his thoughts and then the the truck is is just in the back of the frame out of focus and if you're not looking for it you might not notice it to start with and then the driver realizes that the truck driver might be in the bar and there's all these guys at the bar who have the same shoes as the truck driver and he's getting more and more nervous wondering which one it is and there's lots of little black comedy with seeing which which guy at the bar might actually be the truck driver and and it's it's all played brilliantly well um an actor called dennis weaver plays uh, david mann the driver um had previously appeared in orson Welles' touch of evil which is where spielberg had seen him and lobbied to get him into the 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 movie because he really liked his work and he's fantastic he's a teeny bit of a weasel in that he's he's a little bit wimpy to start with and and he's driving a car that is a bit crap if we're honest uh, and he's driving it really badly he does that thing where you put two hands on the top of the steering wheel <laughs> which bugs me intensely because that's not how you drive he, he does do one thing i really did enjoy is there is still the moment of put your foot harder down on the throttle to make the car go faster um but this is an automatic car so <laughs> there's no there's no downshift brutally as in the fast and fury or pick another gear as in any <laughs> number of racing movies but there are you know shots of of brown leather shoe meeting carpet to try and make this uh this car go faster and uh, yeah it's a the the car is a, a Plymouth Valiant, whatever that is, um, it's an American thing. It rocks backwards and forwards on its suspension hilariously, and it doesn't seem to do a lot with its 318 V8 engine. Um, <laughs> apparently Spielberg chose the car based on the colour. He didn't care what the car was. It just needed to stand out against the largely sort of brown, arid, canyon backgrounds. Um, the truck, like I said, was chosen for having a kind of a, a face you can make out from the front and then was presented to the, the production team to dirty it up and make it look as filthy as possible. And one of the things I find weird watching this with modern eyes, and we talk about this a lot when we go back and visit these old movies, is the level of dirt coming out of the smokestack <laughs> on this truck. I mean, it's the kind of the, the inciting uh, moment for... David to overtake this truck is the fact that it's chucking out so much clag that it's starting to come into his car. But just throughout the movie, it's 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 like watching someone coal rolling. It's gross. <laughs> it's disgusting. But that's you know that's the early seventies, and that's a, a a diesel truck with no particulate filter in it. Um, I found that kind of distracting to watch in in some respects. But the movie, particularly in the second half, just ratchets up with more and more kind of standoffs between truck and car and it sounds ridiculous when you say it out loud but really you've got to go and watch this it won't it's 90 minutes long um originally they shot an hour and then um or 74 minutes rather and then universal wanted to release the movie in theatrical 
uh, to, to give the movie a, re- a theatrical release and it wasn't long enough. So they gave Spielberg a bit more extra money and two extra days to film new scenes to turn it into a 90 minute film. One of which is this lovely moment where a school bus has broken down and David is pulled over by the bus driver to try and give it a bump start with his car, which being (laughs) slow and rubbish is not able to do this. And then it cuts to the truck coming through the tunnel and he obviously panics and thinks the truck's going to plough into all these kids milling around and the truck actually gives the bus a push start. (laughs) Which is just such a lovely little moment of humour where you think you know what's going to happen and Spielberg goes left instead of right. Um, It's framed Everything is framed so well. There's loads of great bolt-on shots of the car. There's loads of brilliant framing of the car in the landscape. Anytime he stops, every shot is chosen for a reason. There's a fantastic interview with um, Steven Spielberg talking about the movie where he's interviewed by Edgar Wright. Uh, and that's oh, wow. on Empire's, uh, Empire's website. They've, he did a, an interview with him about Jewel and he points out you know, almost straight off how confident the movie is and how how different it looks to what you might expect for a first-time director. Um, it, it's so visual and so so much of the action is covered in such a way that you can see he wants to edit in in this fashion and there's no just get whatever shot we can and let another editor figure it out. He's pretty much presenting the movie as this is the shot you're going to want because I'm not going to give you any others. <laughs> it's fantastic. I cannot recommend seeing it enough. I'd give it four stars rather than five simply because it starts a little slow. There's a few moments where you think this could have been trimmed. It's probably actually better in a 74-minute cut than the 90-minute. There's there's fat on the, on the bone here that you could trim out. But it's such an interesting insight into a directorial talent that clearly had it all right from the get-go. And it's such a contrast, really, to seeing someone who absolutely knows what they want to do, have seen the story, lobbied for it, knows exactly how they want to present it on screen to to maximum dramatic effect and maximum overdrive, which is none of those things. Not at all. Fantastic. I'll have to check that out. It's It's been one of those films that kind of floats around the periphery that maybe doesn't get the acclaim of something like a Ronin, but often gets referred to in terms of visual filmmaking. It is. It's practically an art movie. Like I say, it's it's... In terms of visual filmmaking, there is some stuff that dates it slightly, but it's so good. It's uh, f- for a first feature film, or not even not even a feature film, but just for a director so young and so inexperienced. It's astonishing work, and like I say, I don't know whether you can. I've got this on DVD, and I've had it for ages and ages and ages. Um, I don't know if you can pick up a copy. I think there might actually be a, a Blu-ray reissue coming out, but. Um, if you can find it, watch it. It's brilliant. I don't think you can have a better summary than that, really. No, it's been really nice doing a really good thing after my last my last review of the Fangio documentary that was quite disappointing. It's been really enjoyable having a great movie to to kind of evangelise about, which is what we put this <laughs> put this show together for originally. And I'm very sorry you had to do Matchroom Overdrive. We'll do we'll do a an even Stevens show next time. And I have to say, if anybody does have any suggestions on films that we should review or themes. Please let us know. We're always happy to add more to our list. However, for this episode, my YouTube pick of the week is something that I found kind of by mistake. The Peterson Museum in LA have been putting out quite a lot of content over this lockdown period, including virtual tours of the museum, which by all accounts are are fascinating. 
I found a two-part film of uh, someone called Bruce Canipa. Canipa? Canipa? Let's say Canipa. I'm not sure. Canipa. I think it's Canipa. Who is somebody that I've known, apart from vaguely recognising the name as a racing driver, if you go to canipa.com, he has an astonishing collection of cars for sale currently, including like an Impsa Spec Jaguar right now, a 962 in coat colours. He actually sold, when I was looking earlier, you know all the Ganassi factory Ford GT uh, GTE LM cars? Oh, yeah. He sold all of those to private customers, um, as well as Chip Ganassi's personal Ford GT road car. So he's got this this astonishing showroom of cars for sale and a few years ago he made a bit of a name for himself doing a process of restoration and improvement on the porsche 959 so basically you take your porsche 959 to him and it you know full nut and bolt restoration any color you want any leather you want oh no i do remember seeing these out on online and and in in the press actually yes the, the 959 rings a bell i didn't i would not have put his name against it but i remember mm. seeing those ads and it was even things like the hollow magnesium wheels they redid them in 18 inches instead of 17 so you could fit that, better tires yes um also they upgraded the horsepower i think a 959 by uh, from standard is about 450 horsepower. I think, um, yeah, something like that, or 495. Something like that. They give it 800. Anyway. <laughs> Enough. So, yeah, sufficient. Um, so, the, so there's two parts to this. So the first is him going around his museum, half of which is for sale. So if you fancy a Porsche 935, he's the guy to go to. He's got a Audi LMP1 car, from the diesel era, era, but I think the one just before it went closed cockpit in the corner of his museum, like you do. But the one that I really got fascinated by and the one that I'm recommending today is actually part two, which is half an hour of him going round his workshop because the breadth of the things that they do there is astonishing. They have race cars, for everything from routine servicing through to a full restoration on a 962 or 956 tub. They have a Maybach that somebody's come in and they're debadging it and reprofiling the bumpers and giving it a paint job and other things. Um, they've got the, I think, three 959s in for their customization program. Um, and he goes through and says, you know, this is what we do. Everything's new. Everything's treated. Everything's you know, if it's repainted, everything's repainted. This is as it has left the factory. It just goes into so much detail on every single car. And some of the stuff, like at the back of the um, back of this unit, it's like, a, it must be a kind of 40, 50 foot high warehouse type space. They've got a rack of cars. Honestly, probably about, six cars wide, five high. And you look in the background and you're just like, oh my God, that's that car. And there's that car. And there's that car. And he just walks along the line of cars and it's like, there's an, a, you know, a 991 GT3 RS. And there's an, a 918. And this is the original Carrera GT concept car. And this is the next thing. And this is the next thing. And here's another 959. And here's a Mustang that we're doing restoration on. Any single one of those cars you could probably do a 20-minute video on 
But he just has so much going on and it's so varied and it's so in-depth and it's just fascinating. If you like the mechanics of cars, not even necessarily getting your hands dirty, but if you just like seeing what goes into some of these cars, especially the racing cars, especially now that the historic scene has pushed a lot of those into really active use, it's, it's fascinating. He is... He's not the most engaging person in the world, but he does a he does a really good job of talking about what he's showing you. He knows what goes into every car. He knows everything about that he's talking about. It's a really interesting video because it and it just keeps moving. There's always like, I wonder what the next is going to be. I wonder what's around just around that corner. I wonder what the, you know, it happens here. I'm quite interested to see to have a look at the the video i'm now interested to go and look at those 959s again because i do find it interesting that people are coming to him and say yeah take my 959 which is presumably worth many hundreds of thousands of pounds and they're going here have more hundreds of thousands of pounds to make it not stock and the kind of thing Mm. that a ferrari f40 a contemporary rival of the 959 would never have happened because the owners are too busy going matching numbers ferrari (laughs) classic But the, one of the really interesting things, and I think what his knowledge really brings to this, because he's he's clearly not just some guy who sits in his office and can't, somebody comes to him and says, how about we do this program? He's like, yeah, that's fine. He could actually look at the back of a car and go, this is stock. We, we replace this as it would look. We know that this panel should be gold coloured because that's how they came from the factory. We've had this remanufactured in some new material so that it looks exactly like the old one. The idea that you're... I mean, it's not even like a singer because I think a singer is much more the idea of one man looking at a car and going, okay, I'm going to completely blow it apart and I'm going to pull all the best bits from anything I want to make my car. Yeah, that's why it's called reimagined for the singers and very specifically so. But you're, you're right, you're right. I do want to watch this now. It sounds really interesting, so I'm going to have to check that one out later. What have you got for your channel of the week? Well, sticking with the working on cars theme, I was pointed at this by someone on Twitter, and I forget who, and I, I thank them hugely. There's a channel called Zero EV, and before anyone starts going, oh, EVs. Oh, EVs. There, thank you. Their channel is all about modification and it's about often putting a... Petrol engines in otherwise brilliant bodies. <laughs> so it basically is a series of projects where they do a an electric R32 Skyline. They do an electric Porsche Boxster. They do an electric Porsche MX-5. But they do a lot of the work themselves, so it's a proper like build project type series. They are currently working on a conversion, which I am really looking forward to them finishing, which is a Renault Twizy, so already an electric car, which I think has 16 horsepower as standard, a range of about 350 yards, um, which you and I have actually driven, and it's appalling to drive. It's because- really crap, and it's really uncomfortable, and it's really plasticky, and it's an absolute hoot to drive if you happen to be... <laughs> in the south of France on a bread and cheese run. <laughs> but if you are driving it around, I don't know, London or somewhere, then you're taking your life into your own hands. You really are. And the, the car itself, it, it, I mean, it doesn't have a lot of weather protection unless you specify the thing that looks like... It doesn't have any weather protection because it doesn't have any doors. If you can specify a wet weather kit, which is kind of like sticking an umbrella to each door. Anyway, so... and. It, 
you also sit with the passenger um, astride the driver, so you sit sort of tandem yeah, style. It's, it's basically really like a, it's basically like a, 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 a zinger, double buggy, but yeah, one, of those, one of those buggies where the, the, the elder <laughs> child sits behind the smaller child. However, what they're doing is they're taking the electric motor out of a Golf GTE plug-in hybrid. They're taking a battery pack, I think, possibly from a Nissan Leaf. And they're giving a Renault Twizy 100 horsepower, which, I'm sorry, is terrifying. And I can't wait to see it finished. It's terrifying. Just thinking about it sounds terrifying. But hey, more power to them. I find it quite interesting that there is this cottage industry of people doing EV conversions and and reusing and recycling crashed ev tech there's a great channel i could point out rich rebuilds who does loads of stuff with teslas um and other people who aren't necessarily on youtube but do do stuff with interesting crashed cars uh ralph hosius brings to mind but mm. many others like him my youtube picks for the week are as follows i went back for a bit of reminiscing for my youtube picker this week it is the aston martin v8 vantage n430 edition on the old military road with sound your flannel klaxons everyone henry catchpole <laughs> i love this video this might be my favorite thing that henry's ever done he did it when he was back with evo and it's it's a stretch of road that's very personal to me because I've driven it a lot now and I love it so much. It's back up in the Highlands of Scotland. Uh, this video explains why you should get up to Scotland and see this scenery and see these roads because it's not just talking about the car. The car, Henry, doesn't really even start talking about until two-thirds of the way through the clip. It's all about the road. And he describes it in such a way that makes you want to get out there and drive all the way up the M1 and the M6 and the M8 round through Glasgow and all the way up past Perth and get right there in a day. And it can be done. I've done it. It's just very tiring. Uh, but it makes you want to get there right now and drive that road because on a good day, it's one of the best roads in the world. And then you add to that a green Aston Martin V8 Vantage with that gargly <laughs> V8 soundtrack. Some slightly questionable yellow accents in that particular edition, but it's like he, he describes it as being exactly the enough car for the road and it's got enough power that you can get a little, uh, a little tail happy. It's sprung correctly. It's got great steering feel, manual gearbox, good seats. And there is nothing in this world that that sells me on the concept of the V8 Vantage more than this video. I very much want to repeat this trip myself at some point in an Aston Martin because I've seen it so much. But it's beautifully filmed by Sam Riley, uh, who did a lot of stuff with Henry Catchpole at Evo and I know has done work with him for Carfection alongside Charlie Rose. It's got a spectacular ending to it, just a gorgeous clip of the car pulling away in slow-mo. It gives you some of the best shots of of that particular part of Scotland that I think you're going to see. It's a must-see. If you haven't seen this video, you must see it, and then you're going to want to go out for a drive. And I think we're kind of allowed to go out for drives now <laughs> a little bit. So you might want to just hop into your car and go out on your favourite B road. But, yeah, please watch this. It is one of the best things I say that Henry's ever done. And for the channel, I'm going back to Nürburgring. Like I said earlier on, I went on a bit of a, a Nürburgring blitz watch on YouTube, really. Uh, and this is uh, Robert Mitchell, who is one of the founders, owners, starters of Apex Nürburg. Uh, he 
is a fascinating character to to listen to. He's doing all sorts of stuff where they're asking questions about the Nürburgring, his approach to driving the Nürburgring. But the ones that, that really interested me was he did a couple of videos on there. They have a 675LT on the Apex Nürburgring car fleet that they do laps for hire in. And he posted an onboard POV video of him driving like the thousandth lap of the Nordschleifer in the car. And it's just a really well-driven lap. Not balls out crazy Kevin Estra stuff, but clean, fast, respectful, the kind of lap you think, yeah, given enough time living next to the Nürburgring, I could drive like that. Um, and also, you know, a 675LT in bright orange with a snorkel. There's a couple of laps on there. He's, he's also made a video about the 488 Pista that they have, and they've taken to Manti Racing for a bit of tweakage. Uh, and there's a POV video of him lapping that as well and that's an interesting one to watch because i think i fired a text off to you pretty much straight after watching these saying doesn't it seem so much easier to drive the nordschleifer if you've got flappy paddles on your car i've only ever driven it around with a manual and you watch him particularly in the pista blipping up and down the gears for every single corner because it's very short geared i suppose and he you know Mm. hands are always on the steering wheel so you've always got that extra element of control um there's some really good stuff on his channel and he's he's starting doing a thing with three fan-sourced questions about the Nürburgring or about Apex every week on a Friday, I think, or Thursday. They're worth watching. So I'd recommend his channel. As, um, he obviously works with Misha Chirudin, who we've had as the very first Intermission podcast interviewee and we've mentioned his clips on the show before. And he features on Misha's channel a lot and Misha pops up in his channel every now and then. Uh, he's got far fewer followers than Misha. So I feel like we should give him a few, a few extra ones. So go check out Robert Mixon's channel on, uh, on YouTube. And I've got to say, I think really since the whole lockdown situation happened, Robert doesn't typically, I believe actually live in Nürburgring, but for whatever reason, he's been there throughout this whole thing, and um, his family have been there as well, and, and they've 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 done a lot of stuff there, particularly with the team who are there. So Tom Stamp doing a lot of the camera work and ensuring that these videos actually get produced. But I think the thing with Robert is that he's always been slightly in Misha's shadow because I think Misha is is kind of the face. He's quite gregarious. And Robert hasn't always done that much video stuff. And it seems notable this year that he's ramped that up. And not just in terms of um, in terms of the driving, but also talking about more presenting, talking about both the building work they're doing at Apex, so the way that they've changed that over the winter. But what I found really interesting was that he's also very good at talking about what he's doing, why he's doing it. He talks about uh, tyres, so how to drive the tyres so that they warm up in a way that will give them good life, what it feels like in the corners. and Yeah, I found it interesting. There's a couple of videos which I must watch, particularly before I go back to the Nordic Life, on how to drive your first laps or how to drive a slow lap uh, or how to drive slow cars fast or whatever it is. There's some interesting stuff on just how to approach as long and as technical and daunting a circuit as the Nautilifer, if you're new to it or if you're like me coming to it after a, nearly a decade away from driving it. Mm. So there's, there's, it's like a resource. It's not just here is some nice flashy cars in the car park and a quick lap. There's, there's more considered content. And I really appreciate that. Definitely. 
Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of the Auto Movie Podcast. Uh, if you enjoyed listening to us, then please leave us a nice comment. If you have any feedback on Maximum Overdrive and Jewel, if you think we are idiots for dissing Stephen King and his directorial opus, or if you think <laughs> I'm mad for thinking that Jewel is fantastic, then please do get in touch with us um, at Auto Movie Pod on Twitter, or you know you can email us at comments at automoviepodcast.com. Um, We're going to be back in a week or so with another intermission and then another pod after that. But in the meantime, I think we're both going to try and make sure that we don't get run over by massive trucks. Until next time, everyone.